Today I'm starting a new series, and the series titled is, What is Truth? What is Truth? The title of the message today is Truth and Faith. And I'm really I'm enthusiastic about jumping into this topic because, honestly, it's something that we hear constantly within our culture today. In fact, the idea of truth is really in crisis, and it's really important for us to know what we believe. It's important for us to know why we believe what we believe. And so there are some people that use the term apologetics. Most of you probably have heard that. Uh, There are other people that don't like that word because it sounds like we're apologizing for what we believe. Apologetics is is really just an aspect of what we believe, why we believe it, and, and our defense of the faith. And so as we launch into this series today, what I hope is that we will be able to build a foundation over these next few weeks that will withstand anything that our world and anything that current culture can throw at it. I've often said, we don't throw away our brains when we become children of God. In fact, we engage them in in even greater ways. And so we're going to be looking at several different things, like how does science and the Bible fit together? What new discoveries are being made that, that are confirming things that we have already believed? And there are going to be a number of different authors that I'm going to quote a number of them that I'm going to allow to contribute into this. One of them that you're going to hear regularly of, his name is Dr. Wave Nunley. He is a professor at Evangel University, and he's over 20 years' experience of being an expert in early Judaism and Christian origins. Dr. James Bradford, who used to be one of our executive officers in the Assembly of God, now pastors at Central Assembly in Springfield, Missouri, came into the ministry from a background of being a rocket scientist. And so there are aspects of science that he has looked at in combination with Scripture that we're going to be able to to begin to put some some of those things together. And so today I would like to begin by letting you know where the series title has come from in Scripture. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 18, verse 36, because these words, what is truth, were actually spoken by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who was holding Jesus on trial at that moment. And Jesus was about to be crucified in a few hours, and there's this interesting interaction that takes place. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then the question from Pilate to Jesus, which has resonated throughout the last 2,000 years and from which we draw the title of this series, What is Truth? Pilate said. Heavenly Father, as we launch into this, we quickly recognize that you are a God that loves to bring us to places of discovery. In fact, from the moment that we met you, whether it be through your word or through experiences or counsel, we have discovered new aspects of your love and your grace and your mercy and your power every step of the way in our journey. 
And Lord, you've also told us that if we lack wisdom, that we can ask it of you and that you give it without measure. So Lord, I'm praying that as we engage our minds and we begin to capture the essence of the world we live in, that you would give us the ability to engage them with truth. Help us to discover your truth, O Lord, and then give us the ability to communicate that well, I pray. And we pray that in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. I've already mentioned that the truth, and I use that term in parentheses, is in crisis. And it has been for decades now, as relativism has become a part of Western culture. And for those of you that are taking notes, you might want to just jot down this first point with this. Relativism versus the truth. Relativism versus the truth. Relativism means that there is no absolute truth. It means there is no absolute truth. And so we often, in our world today, hear the language of relativism, whether people like to believe that that's where they fall or not. But when we we are trying to share the gospel, for those of you that have had this experience, you probably have heard terms like this. Well, it's fine if that works for you. Have any of you ever heard that before? As you begin to share your faith, they're going, well, it's fine if it works for you. In other words, what they're saying is, my truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth, and it's just fine if it works for you. But you can tell by the way they say it that they don't really mean it. Sometimes, after following that up, things may get a little bit more hostile with them, and they begin to apply this terminology, again, may not even know that they are dealing with a relativistic attitude. Don't try to impose your beliefs and your values on me. Don't you dare try to tell me that what you believe is something that I need to believe. I've had non-Christians say that to me as I've tried to share with them the love of Christ and to let them know that they can have a relationship with Christ as well. And they say, don't impose your understanding in the way they're speaking it as this is something that you have developed a belief system about, but don't expect me to develop that same belief system. It's good for you, but not for me. And then generally that leads to this terminology. Truth is what I choose it to be. Truth is what I choose it to be. And in essence, we live in a culture where the message that is being taught to our children in our public schools all the way through our university students is this. Truth is a choice. What I choose to be true to me and what you choose to be true to you may be different things, but each of us have the ability and the right to choose our own belief systems by which we will live. And so they say to you, truth is what I want it to be. Truth is nothing more than a choice that I make. Doesn't that sound like our culture today? We hear it on the news every day. The message of relativism conveys is that if truth is what I want it to be, then there absolutely is no absolute truth that all of us are bound by. And if we take a closer look at this, we can see the question that if truth is what I choose it to be, and if there are no absolutes, then we as believers know that that is the battleground that we need to start at. 
in defense of our faith and what we believe and how we're going to address that with our culture. If we, if we want to be able to speak truth into them, we need to be able to speak it at the language that they believe. And if you look around, what I have discovered of relativists is this. They are not disputing that there are absolute truths in some things. In fact, in the areas of mathematics and physics and biology, most of them will agree that there are absolute truths that apply to their lives there. In fact, sociologists tell us that when they study cultures, that every culture has some belief in a sense of ownership or in a sense of personal property, though it is defined differently in, in, in some cultures, including communistic cultures. They also have discovered in different sociological circles that it seems in every people group there is some sacredness toward human life being special. So, when we begin to address individuals that are living in an, a relativistic society that believe that there is no absolute truth, and we begin to engage them on that level, we come to understand this. In school, we learn that two plus two is four. And that through the centuries, that has never changed. Regardless of how you and I may have done on our mathematics test growing up, there was a right answer and there was a wrong answer. It was an absolute certainty. We also know with absolute certainty that gravity pulls things to the ground. Nothing falls off trees and flies upwards. We also know that the sun always rises in the east and always sets in the west. It is certain that that is going to happen, just as it is certain that we that live in upstate New York will see snow in the wintertime. Those facts are not up for negotiation, nor is the absolute truth that we as created beings still must have food and oxygen to sustain life. So... It doesn't matter how much you may wish those facts away or how inconvenient they may be. They are absolute certainties that just about everybody in the world would receive. And so when we approach the atmosphere of, of speaking to people with a relativistic view versus absolute truth, it seems to me that here is where they have fallen. There is absolute truth in everything except these two areas, theology and morality. Those are the two areas that fight you the hardest on where they will fall in the area of everything is relative. In fact, they will fight so hard in these areas, and it comes from an underlying aspect of their soul that is unredeemed, but they will continue to accept absolutes in every other area but those two. So, we recognize that if you run through a red light, chances are you're either going to get a ticket or you're going to get hit because that is what the light means. There are consequences when we break absolute truths, no matter how you may want to redefine them. So how do we engage in the conversation? The first thing that you may want to do with people who claim a relativistic, no moral absolutes or a postmodern belief system is to redefine reality in a way that negatively impacts them personally. Let me explain this to you. The first thing I've asked people that say they don't believe in absolutes is, do you have any locks on your house? Well, yes. Well, that's fascinating because... My attitude toward personal property is that your house should be my house. That what you have should be mine. Or 
I believe in this relativistic view that you hold, then that your automobile ought to be available to me anytime I want it. That I, that's what I feel is right, and since there are no moral absolutes, that's what I believe should take place. Or, I should have the right to drain your savings account and drain your checking account, steal your credit card number, and run it up to the full balance that it's capable of because that's what I believe should be right. Or even worse, I believe that I should be able to take your children and sell them into human trafficking because that's what I believe to be right. And if that doesn't work, just reach over and try to take their cell phone and watch what happens when they slap your hand, pull it away from you, and tell you, no, 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 that's mine. All of a sudden they will begin to respond, that wouldn't be right. That's against the law. And they begin to appeal to an absolute truth when it negatively affects them. You see, it's hard to live consistently when you are a relativist. Dr. Jim Bradford, talking about Einstein's theory of relativity, said this, his theory changed the view of the universe a hundred years ago. But Einstein did not like the term relativity. In fact, he said, I wish we had called it the theory of invariance because the relationship between time and space and the relationship between energy and matter is fixed. It is invariant. But the terminology of relativity got assigned to his work much to his objection. Here's the paradox of the crisis that we are seeing because now people may say to you that they do not believe in an absolute truth, even though they are applying it strictly to theology or morality. But when you begin to confront them, the first thing that happens to them is they get angry with you. When they have an indefensible position, they get angry and then they want to cancel you. And that's the culture we're in today. We are in a cancel culture. It's not that they believe everybody should believe what they want to. It's that everybody should believe what I want you to believe. In fact, it even relates as it does to human rights. Some cultures don't value human rights, but most of them believe that there are values to life. And when you talk to people who are relativistic and you begin to ask them, well, what do you believe as it relates to human rights? Most of them will say things like, well, I do believe that everybody has rights to live or women should have rights or there should be worldwide rights as it relates to gender rights and things of that nature. And again, it runs back to the fact it's hard to be a relativist because their idea is so fascinating and inconsistent because it only relates to theology and morality. And if you engage in that conversation and you can narrow it to those two themes, suddenly you have a foothold by which you can address. So here's our theme verse for this series. It's found in John chapter 14, verse 6, and I want you to underline this because it's going to be one that's very important to you. Jesus is speaking, and Jesus makes this proclamation, and he says this, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the truth. And I am the life. And what I hope is that through this study we grow to love Jesus more than we do today because He embodies everything that is truth. When Cindy and I attended Evangel University, there was a statement that was made oftentimes. I particularly remember it in our, in our Bible study classes, and that was this. All truth is God's truth. 
Wherever you find truth, it will be because God has revealed it. Because all truth emanates from His being, and there is no truth apart from Him. And so we live in a culture today, and as I look around, I'm so grateful for the fact that this church is multi-generational. I see students, I see college students, I see young adults, I see older adults, I see grandparents. So here's what we are facing today in our culture. This term relativism is not new to those of us who are my age because we lived through it in the early 60s and 70s. It just had a different terminology. Back in the Woodstock generation, we just called it, I want to do what I want to do. We weren't, you know, we didn't apply titles to everything. It was just the fact that it was a replacement term for let me do my own thing. If it feels good, do it. And all the older people say, well, I remember that. So today it's just been titled. It comes from an inner desire that Satan stirs within us to have total freedom of expression irrespective of where the chips may fall. So in order to self-justify, culture embarks on this journey to break the restraints that exist when God and His Word create a moral law that restrains and restricts our human desire for destructive unrestraint. The most academic way to accomplish this is to do away with the existence of God by trying to disprove His existence thereby removing the, the reliability of the Bible as real and true and divine and eternal. And here is the unbeliever's difficulty. In trying to recreate truth the way they want it to be, to the extent that it will only benefit their individual idea of truth, you have to remove the fact that there was a Christ. And the more they try to prove it, the worse it becomes for them. Because Jesus declared, I am the truth. And thereby, he made it impossible for truth to be removed from theology. Jesus declared it. So in this study, we're going to spend some time on the topics of how can we trust the Bible. What does the Bible say about human sexuality, which is highly debated today and is an area where most people are saying, I get to decide what truth is here. We're going to look at, is there evidence for Jesus outside of the Bible? How do we know that Jesus really rose from the dead? And then we're going to spend a couple of weeks dealing with how science discoveries in the Bible are fitting together to prove things that we have already believed. And so while we're going to focus on the evidence for the truth, there is this one piece that we cannot get away from. And that is the idea that regardless of what we find as evidence, it still requires of us that we need to believe it by faith. So where does faith fit in? The question comes, if we can absolutely prove everything in the Bible and that God exists, do we still need to take a step of faith? How does evidence and faith fit together? And of all of these biblical issues, the evidence of God, if it can all be verified and corroborated, then what do we do as people in the fact that God still says, I require you to step into this by faith? There's often a scripture that's quoted out of Hebrews 11, which is the great faith chapter, and it says this, Now faith is substance or confidence in what we hope for and evidence or assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then there's a passage that Paul writes in Romans, in Romans 8.24, For in hope 
We were saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope. Or excuse me, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what they have already seen? These passages are brought up on a regular basis by people that believe if all of this can be proven, then we really don't need to take a step of faith at all because everything is evidence-based. But it also tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, speaking of the agents, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they are strangers and exiles on this earth. So what we need to approach this with is the understanding that faith is, I, I use the term, it's, it's not monodimensional, it's multidimensional, and it fits in these ways. There is a futuristic aspect to our faith. There is a present aspect to our faith, as well as a past aspect of faith. In fact, today, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, probably like you are, because of His finished work on the cross. It's something that already took place that I believe in, and because His past work, it has inspired my current faith. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the foundation of our faith has to do with things that have already happened. Our faith is in Jesus Christ who died for our sins, who was buried and who rose from the dead ultimately and is going to take us to heaven with Him. That's the foundation. So we look at this and recognize some of our faith is based on past tense issues. We also recognize that there's a present issue that we have to deal with in faith. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, and I love this terminology, who are being saved, it is the power of God. How many of you recognize that you're working out your salvation day by day? That you had an entry-level experience with God, that you became saved, and your salvation in heaven was secured then, but day by day we are learning more of Him, and we are applying more of His truth, and we are growing to be more like Him every day, and we are working out our salvation that will ultimately end in the salvation of our souls winning when either we are raptured or we die, and that journey is completed. So there's a present tense. We were singing about it today. Lord, I believe... I believe in my current faith walk with you that we're going to see these things take place within our life. And then we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, the combination of all of these multifaceted aspects of faith when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There it is. That's the past tense aspect of our faith. We are doing this based on what's been done in the past. Verse 4 says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There's our future aspect of, of faith. We are dealing with an understanding that I have got a reward in heaven waiting for me because of the way that we live our lives today. And then verse 5 says, who are protected by the power of God through faith, which is our present, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So biblical faith, trusting in God for the future, is actually based on our current relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which is predicated upon what God has done in the past and what He's going to give to us in the future. So when we approach this with faith, we understand that there are reasons why we can believe that what's been done in the past is true, which builds us into a present faith, knowing that God is going to provide for something in the future. 
Moses had a conversation with God. While he was standing at a burning bush, it tells us in Exodus 3, that Moses was wanting to know, listen, as I'm, as I'm dealing with this, as I'm, I'm working for you, who am I going to say has sent me? And Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and they will say to me, The God of your fathers, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. But they will say to me, What is his name? Who shall I say to them? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then he said, This is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, This is what you shall say. I am the God of the Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is the name for all generations to use who call upon me. So when Moses has this conversation, God says, I am. That's who you're going to tell people. Meaning that when he said that my name is footnoted as part of verifiable history, I have walked with your grandfather, I've walked with your father, I will walk with you. All of this is true in the past and it will be true of you in the future. I am going to be the same with you. Today we sang songs of faith because we recognize that what God has done in the past, we know He's capable and able and competent enough to do in the future. He has a long history of working with us. And when we get to the New Testament, the message is still the same in Acts chapter 1 when it says, until the day that He was taken up to heaven after He had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen, to these He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things regarding the kingdom of God. And so we quickly realize as we jump into this, that faith and evidence are like best friends. Faith and evidence are like a hand in glove. It is not blind faith. It's not that we're hoping against hope. It is not simply pie in the sky hoping that something becomes real. We are trusting a God today who has a long, extensive track record throughout history of faithfulness. And because of that, we live our lives in faith every day understanding that He will lead us to a glorious future for those who have put their trust in Him. Worship team, if you'd please come. So faith and evidence go together. It tells us in Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For the one who comes to God must believe that He exists. Must believe that He exists. And that He proves to be the one who rewards those who seek Him. So there is an evidential basis for the belief that He exists. He is a rewarder of those who believe in Him, which means that this speaks of His character. And God exists, and we know that we can trust His character. And as a result of that, as we enter into this, we know that He will lead us and guide us into all truth. For those of you that are here today, and you may be watching online, you may be here, but you've been wrestling with this question. How can I live in my culture? This crisis of truth that is within our culture. Lord, how can I not only be faithful to you, but how can I engage it? How can I step into the levels where people are at that, that have a no absolute truth belief? Understanding that they're really only trying to apply this to theology and morality. How can I step into that world 
and engage them in such a way that your Holy Spirit can begin to work through them. Well, I want you to know that we can do it with boldness because Jesus boldly and with great audacity said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And so there's something of evidence and faith that when we begin to unite them in this conviction that God will not turn away from you when you need Him. And He will help you at the moment you need it the most. He said that when you get into situations, when you open your mouth, my Holy Spirit will give you words to say and wisdom to address it.